You've probably never heard of Sharky. There has never been a Hollywood movie made about him. No one has written a biography. And as of the recording of this episode, Sharky doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. But back in the day, Sharky was one of the most widely sought after and hardest working performers in the entertainment industry. He starred alongside Abbott and Costello in a movie, stole the show in a Rogers and Hart musical, and shook the hand of the President of the United States. Ladies loved him, and men, well, they loved him too. For nearly two decades, Sharky amazed audiences with his charismatic performances on both stage and screen. But oddly, the one entertainment medium that he never mastered was radio. When Sharky finally got his shot at conquering the airwaves in 1941, he found himself in the crosshairs of one of the music industry's most powerful organizations, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, better known as ASCAP. ASCAP is a performing rights organization that licenses songs for public performance to entities such as restaurants, nightclubs, and of course, radio stations. In 1941, due to a royalty payment dispute, ASCAP boycotted all American radio stations, and Sharky's radio debut was scheduled smack in the middle of the boycott. In the beginning of 1941, very few radio stations in the United States of America were allowed to broadcast songs controlled by ASCAP, and Sharky's entire repertoire just happened to be ASCAP. Unfortunately for Sharky, it wasn't that easy to learn new songs. You see, Sharky was a SEAL. Not like the kind of seal you send in with guns to go mess up Osama bin Laden. Sharky was the amphibious sea creature kind of seal that goes arp arp. And this seal knew his way around a tune. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. The circumstances that led up to the great radio boycott of 1941 began long before the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers was formed, and decades before Sharky the Seal was even a young pup growing up on Catalina Island. The story begins when the United States Congress passed the Copyright Act of 1909. Prior to the Copyright Act, it was nearly impossible for a songwriter to collect money for uses of their songs, such as live performances. Songwriters made most of their money by writing as many as they could and then selling them for a flat fee to music publishers. The music publishers would make money by printing sheet music of the songs they bought and selling the sheet music in a retail outlet like Sears Roebuck & Company or Macy's Department Store. Today, a music publisher's primary job is to shop around songs written by their songwriters and get those songs placed on other artists' albums or used in movies, TV shows, or commercials. But 100 years ago, printed sheet music played a much bigger role in the music industry than it does today. A music publisher was very similar to a book publisher. The same way a book publisher prints books by their authors, music publishers would print sheet music composed by their songwriters. Both songwriters and music publishers thought it was unfair that other businesses, such as nightclubs, could profit from using their songs and didn't have to pay the creators. So... While the Copyright Act of 1909 was being drafted, songwriters lobbied Congress to include what became Section 1, Subsection E of the Act, which basically said that songwriters had the exclusive right to perform their songs publicly, for a profit, and had to be paid when others performed their songs. After the Act passed, songwriters then had the legal grounds to sue a business that used their music, but strangely, they were a little afraid to try to enforce the law. There were a number of years that led up to the passage of the Copyright Act. Before that, songwriters, I believe, could sue somebody if they performed their song, but it was very hard to enforce the law, and you couldn't get make really sue them for much. 
That's Bruce Pollock, an author who has penned many books, including the official history of ASCAP, titled A Friend in the Music Business, The ASCAP Story. Often publishers didn't want to pursue this because they were afraid that it would alienate the people who were playing their music. For instance, if there was a band in a nightclub playing along as you were eating, the proprietor restaurant would say, music is just incidental. People come in here to eat. We're not going to pay for the music. And if a publisher went after them, then they say, well, we'll play some other music. You won't get the exposure. The, the whole argument was always, we're giving you exposure. We don't have to pay you. We're paying you plenty just by playing your song. And when they changed the copyright law, it gave songwriters more power. So theoretically, it gave a basis for change, but it didn't change anything right away until a number of songwriters began to realize that we need to gather together and we have to join hands with the publishers so that we'll have some sort of clout. In order to challenge the claim that businesses who used music were not profiting off of that music, songwriters and music publishers understood that they needed to band together and fight as a united front. So they organized some meetings, and comically, the first meeting they scheduled, very few showed up to. Apparently, songwriters don't like inclement weather. The second meeting, however, was scheduled on a day with clear skies at the Hotel Claridge in New York City's Times Square. So they called another meeting, and between that time, you know, November, between November and February, all the songwriters went around lobbying to get everybody to attend. That's also Bruce Pollock, the author of A Friend in the Music Business, The ASCAP Story. He sounds different because we recorded this piece of the interview over the phone. So on February 13th, about uh, 100 songwriters showed up, including... uh, Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern, all the popular songwriters of the day. And that was the day that is officially when the the ASCAP charter was announced and all these people signed up. One of the people at the Hotel Claridge that day was a man named Victor Herbert. Victor Herbert was an American composer, cellist, and conductor with a mustache that could make a hipster drool. He had a long history of fighting for the rights of composers to profit from their works. He even testified before Congress while the Copyright Act of 1909 was being debated. When ASCAP was founded, Herbert was elected vice president and held that post till his death in 1924. Soon, after that meeting in the Hotel Claridge, he tested ASCAP's authority to enforce the performance clause in the courts for the first time ever. Victor Herbert was among the one or two most vocal about, I'm going to get this going. And it was his song, uh, Sweethearts, from his uh, opera that he heard in a club when he was sitting with uh, Puccini. And he was enraged that he wasn't getting paid when some singer was singing one of his songs. The club Bruce Pollock is referring to was a restaurant located in New York City's Times Square area named Shanley's. Shanley's was the type of restaurant the world leaders like Theodore Roosevelt and celebrities like Harry Houdini would dine at when they were in Manhattan. The interior featured ornate chandeliers, mahogany, fancy mirrors, and of course an orchestra performing for patrons eating their expensive meals. Victor Herbert was eating one of those meals when the orchestra played his song Sweethearts. When he was finished eating, the waiter handed him a staggering check. Herbert looked at the check and said to the waiter, You've charged me for every item on the menu, apparently and I'm paying the bill. But how much are you paying me for playing my music? The answer was, of course, nothing.
So Victor Herbert sued Shanley's restaurant for illegal use of his compositions. In 1917, the Supreme Court of the United States decided to hear the case of Herbert versus Shanley Company. One of the justices was the eminent Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., whose extrusive mustache rivaled Victor Herbert's. Justice Holmes' father was a writer and made his living off of copyrighted material, so his opinion may not have been the most objective. He probably should have recused himself from the case in that he had such personal uh, relationship to what a writer would go through when copyright is, is involved. So he had a, a leaning towards the songwriters and towards the idea of copyright being something that's valuable and that creation deserves protection. Justice Holmes did not recuse himself, and when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of ASCAP, Holmes wrote the majority opinion. The performance clause put it in, in writing and put it in law that you had to get paid any time a song of yours was played anywhere in public for profit. And then the for profit was the thing that brought everybody to court because they would say, well, we're not doing it for profit. Finally, when the case was resolved by Oliver Wendell Holmes, he said they wouldn't do it unless it gave them a profit. That forced the people to pay up. In the same year the United States entered World War I, the Supreme Court's ruling on Herbert versus Shanley Company changed the songwriting business, and it has never been the same since. For the first time ever, American restaurants, bars, gyms, concert halls, and any for-profit establishment that played music had to pay songwriters for that music, with ASCAP acting as the intermediary. The ruling also set the legal foundation for future copyright battles that would arise when new technology created new ways to use music. Around the same time the Copyright Act of 1909 was being debated in Congress, a young man named Mark Hewling had taken a job working for a circus. Hewling studied many of the circus professions, such as tumbling, but soon discovered that his true passion was working and performing with animals, particularly seals. Hewling, along with his two brothers and their performing animals, honed their craft and began touring around the United States with various circus companies. In 1914, the same year ASCAP was founded, the Hewling brothers decided to leave behind life on the road and settled down in a town 100 miles north of New York City called Kingston, a town whose population has never surpassed 30,000 people. They purchased a large plot of land that bordered the Esopus Creek, located just over the Washington Avenue viaduct on Route 28. On that plot of land, the Hewling brothers designed and built a facility to train seals. Around the time Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was writing the majority opinion for the Herbert v. Shanley Company case, Mark Hewling and his brothers were on their way to becoming the United States' foremost seal trainers. Their seals were being used in all the major circuses. A few even developed a bit of fame on their own, but none achieved the level of stardom Sharky would reach two decades later. In the beginning of the 1920s, while Mark Hewling was establishing his SEAL training school, the United States was catching radio fever. Radio sets were selling off the shelves faster than they could be manufactured. In 1922 alone, $60 million worth of radios were sold, the equivalent of nearly $1 billion today. As more households acquired radios, more and more radio stations were founded. And that same year, 1922, 600 radio stations sprang up in the United States. Radio was rapidly changing American popular culture, and music was along for the ride. Now, instead of being exposed to a new song through a vaudeville or Broadway stage show, people were hearing songs on the radio first. If they liked a song, rather than purchase the sheet music, they might buy a recording or simply wait to hear it again on the radio. 
a family that once spent their time after dinner gathered around an upright piano singing songs from sheet music were now gathered around a radio set listening to their favorite shows. People were beginning to lose interest in sheet music and sales were dropping. Radio was instigating the receding sheet music sales, all the while broadcast companies like CBS and NBC were making huge profits off of these broadcasts. They were profiting, but the songwriters were not. So, ASCAP approached the broadcast companies and asked for some money in exchange for using their artist's songs. But even with the Supreme Court ruling on ASCAP's side, simply asking wouldn't be enough. As soon as ASCAP would come calling, before they paid, they would go to court. Nobody wanted to pay just because this is the copyright law, this is how it is, and here's the precedent. They said, no, you're going to have to sue us first. The broadcast companies used the same defense as Shanley's Restaurant. They claimed that they were not actually profiting off of music performances. They also claimed we're not for profit. It's not even, we're not even broadcasting music. They said this is just particles of the air being played. And, you know, and they said it was a public service, that we were, were helping, uh, helping people ease their pain by providing them a distraction. <laughs> and it's crazy, the craziest arguments. And they had to take them to court. And the courts, you know, for many, many years, sided with ASCAP. And after the court's decisions came about, every radio station had to pay. The broadcasters' arguments were pretty creative, but this time around, the Supreme Court was not interested in hearing them. It declined to hear the case and allowed a ruling in a lower court to stand. That ruling was for ASCAP. And now, just like Shanley's restaurant, radio had to pay songwriters. Soon after the court decision, the broadcast companies negotiated with ASCAP and devised a payment system. As ASCAP was asserting its newfound legal authority over the radio stations, Mark Hewling's SEAL school was thriving. A few of his SEALs were touring around the country, performing in prominent New York City venues, and attracting larger audiences than many human acts. But in 1929, the unthinkable happened. On the property the Hewling had purchased in Kingston, New York, the one on the other side of the Washington Avenue viaduct along the Esopus Creek, he built a cottage for the SEALs to live in. Somehow, a fire broke out in the cottage. Thirteen of the fifteen SEALs enrolled in Hewling School were killed. The two that survived were on tour, far away from Kingston. The heartbreak and the grieving for his fallen amphibious friends was too much for Hewling, so he decided to retire from training SEALs. After some time passed, he decided to go into a different business, one that wouldn't hurt so much if it burned down. I remember there was always talk of a fire and everything, but again, I was a kid. Uh, that's probably when he bought the nightclub. That's Gary Bohan Sr., the grandson of Mark Hewling. He uh, owned a nightclub where the SEAL College was. He owned property there, and it was a nightclub there, a very successful nightclub called The Barn. And... Uh, it was one of the first miniature golf courses there in the 1930s ever built he had with it. He sold that, and uh, he, I guess that was his attempt maybe uh, not to be in the business, but he had this nightclub, restaurant, and uh, the Seal College was right next door to it. Mark Hewling was now the proprietor of both a mini golf course and a nightclub. There are no records to indicate whether or not he paid ASCAP for the music performed in Hewling's barn. While Mark Hewling was managing his mini-golf course, the contention between the broadcast companies and ASCAP was beginning to flare up again. The two adversaries had a ceasefire that lasted over a decade, but in the second half of the 1930s, while the United States was smack in the middle of the Great Depression, ASCAP made a demand that tested their uneasy truce. 
Well, radio did finally come under ASCAP's thumb, but they never liked it, and they would have different contracts, and every so often they'd have to renew them, and ASCAP would develop a formula and what they felt they should be paid. Now, ASCAP at the time was growing immensely and becoming more kind of arrogant in their power, and they had all the best songs and all the best songwriters, and ASCAP took this particular time in the late 30s to double their rates. ASCAP watched the broadcast company's profits go up year after year while the amount that they paid for music stayed flat. ASCAP wanted to double the rates because they felt it was proportional to the broadcaster's increase in profits. The broadcasters, of course, thought a 100% increase in music fees was way too much, and they were determined to block it. Every attempt to stop ASCAP using the legal system had failed, but even if ASCAP's legal team couldn't be beaten, the broadcasters thought they had found a weakness, an Achilles heel. You see, ASCAP was elitist. They had some rules which resulted in making it a, an exclusive club that a lot of people resented. And the rules were concerning how many popular songs the person had written, how many they'd written in the last year, the general worth of their catalog. And so it wasn't just a public service to songwriters. It was a way of skimming the cream of the songwriters, allowing them to join this. And nobody else could collect performance royalties unless you were in ASCAP. So a lot of songwriters who couldn't get into ASCAP lost out on a lot of money. The broadcast companies believed they could exploit ASCAP's elitism. And at an annual National Association of Broadcasters meeting in 1939, the broadcasters decided to form a rival performing rights organization called Broadcast Music Incorporated, also known as BMI. BMI began signing up all the songwriters ASCAP excluded. Most ASCAP members were white males who wrote songs for Broadway musicals or Hollywood movies. But there was so much music being written in the United States that had nothing to do with Broadway or Hollywood, and not by white males. All of the roots music, hillbilly music, blues, and jazz... BMI reached out to African-American songwriters, country artists, and even aspiring Broadway and Hollywood writers that ASCAP thought were too young and unproven. Everyone ASCAP looked down upon was asked to join BMI. This was the first time any of these songwriters had had an opportunity to earn a public performance royalty like the ASCAP elite. There was a real blindness in terms of uh, where the future was and what music was all about and what people wanted. And they had this elitist viewpoint of this music has been popular for 30 years. We have the best songwriters, you know, the Cole Porters and Gershwin. And this is the uh, great American songbook, even as people think of it now. And that's what they thought of it then. And, and this other music is, has no class. It's rural and anybody could do it. And so it doesn't deserve to be in the ranks of ASCAP. We're not paying. We're going to go, we're going to just use non-ASCAP music. We're the place where you have the most exposure and you're not going to have any. So they were battling back and forth and ASCAP felt, how can America won't stand for radio without all the top songwriters and the best songs and songs from movies and all the things that we control. They, they just won't uh, tolerate it. No one at ASCAP believed that the American population would enjoy this lower class music as much as their great songwriters. So they held firm. In 1940, they sent letters to all the radio stations around the country informing them that if they did not pay the doubled royalty rate, they would not be allowed to broadcast any ASCAP songs after the contract expired on December 31st, 1940. The radio stations were pretty upset. One station in Montana pressed charges against the president of ASCAP for felony extortion. He was apprehended and jailed in Arizona with bail set at $10,000. 
nothing ever came of the charges. As 1940 dragged on, the country began to realize that ASCAP and the broadcast companies would not be able to work out their differences. BMI continued to sign up more and more songwriters. Radio shows began to play fewer and fewer ASCAP songs. Bing Crosby assured his listeners that he would continue singing on the air no matter what happened between ASCAP and BMI. In December of 1940, the broadcast companies ordered all their band leaders with radio shows to stop performing ASCAP songs. On midnight, December 31st, 1940, while most of the country was celebrating the new year, the contract officially expired and all ASCAP music was no longer permitted to be on the radio. The next day, the front page headlines on newspapers all around the country announced that songs such as Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Old Man River, and God Bless America were no longer allowed on the radio. It would be like today if everything from the Beatles to Beyonce disappeared from radio, TV, and the internet, and all you could listen to were songs by people you never heard of, or songs that were so old they were public domain like Camptown Races or Oh Susanna. But amazingly, the radio boycott didn't upset people as much as you might think. After nine years of running his mini golf course and nightclub, Mark Hewling came to terms with the painful memory of the fire and the death of his seals. Seal training was his true calling, and although his other ventures were successful, he left them behind and began working with seals again. Hewling announced plans to build another seal training facility on the same property as the first one. This time, instead of a small school, he was going to build a college complete with a performance venue and a large pool in the middle for the seals to show off the tricks they'd learned. Mark Hewling's return to the animal training world and the construction of the new SEAL College was big news. Both Time Magazine and Popular Science Magazine ran long articles about the college, featuring large photographs taken from inside the school. On Sunday, March 5, 1939, the mayor of Kingston, New York, drove across the Washington Avenue viaduct to the piece of land along the Esopus Creek that Mark Hewling purchased in 1914 and officially dedicated the SEAL College. It was now open for the public to see. Actually, it was just a small wooden building. Uh, I don't know how small it was. It was a good size. And you would walk in, and there'd be a couple of uh, rooms in there for uh, just a, sit, a sitting room and uh, bathrooms, a couple of bathrooms. And then you walk into a larger room. And on the right of that room, there was a, a tool shop where props and things would be made. In the big room was a tank, large tank, where he would practice with the seals and everything year-round. While the college was being constructed, Mark Hewling began to scout for talented pupils. He discovered a seal from Catalina Island, California, named Sharky, whose intelligence and raw talent impressed Hewling. In 1938, Sharky enrolled in the Hewling Seal College and moved to Kingston, New York. Each day, he was fed 15 pounds of fish, a combination of sardines and butterfish, to help maintain his 175-pound figure. Sharkey took to the rigorous training schedule with ease and soon became the college's star pupil and Mark Hewling's favorite student. He soon perfected a trick that would become a staple in his routine, performing music on a custom instrument. It was a homemade instrument. He'd be on a pedestal and he would push his nose against these buttons that would each play a different note. It was almost like a buzzer. The buzzer sounded like a bell being rung. I'm trying to think of something you could compare it with now. He had a baton, and he would put the baton, like almost touching it, and the seal would react to where the baton was and push the button. I don't think the seal had musical knowledge. And uh, he would play the song, and the, and the song was where the river Shannon flows. <laughs> I think that might have been his only song. And the moment that I meet her With a hug and a kiss I'll greet her 
for there's not a calling sweetheart where the river shall not now, with Where the River Shannon Flows in his repertoire, Sharkey had completed his training. Mark Hewling took on the role of managing Sharkey's career and booked him on his first national tour with the Southern Sportsman Show, a touring festival featuring outdoor sports and wildlife. On March 6, while the radio boycott was in full swing, Sharkey was scheduled to participate in the Southern Sportsman Show radio broadcast in New Orleans. Most of his repertoire of tricks were visual and didn't work on the radio. However, the one thing he could perform was his interpretation of where the River Shannon flows. But there was a problem. The song was controlled by ASCAP. The day before the broadcast, the New Orleans radio station contacted the ASCAP lawyers to see if they would make an exception for a trained seal. The next day, the Associated Press sent a wire out to all their affiliated newspapers with ASCAP's answer. The New York Times published that wire the next day. Trained seal is off the air. His sole tune is ASCAP. New Orleans, March 6th. Sharky, the trained seal, is going to have to broaden his repertoire to get back on the air, unless the ASCAP BMI controversy ends shortly. He knows how to play Where the River Shannon Flows, and that's all. It's an ASCAP tune. He was due to broadcast here tonight on a program of the Southern Sportsman Show, but the lawyers said no. When ASCAP made the decision to boycott the radio stations, they did so with the belief that the American public couldn't live without ASCAP songs, and if they couldn't hear their Gershwin and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin on the public airwaves, they would revolt. The public outcry should have forced the broadcast companies to capitulate and accept ASCAP's demands. But the taste of the American public is a fickle beast. When people heard these new songs, written by songwriters from the rural parts of the country, they loved it just as much as their Gershwins and Porters and Berlins. There was no public outcry. There was no revolt. The American public was perfectly happy with BMI songs. And, without radio exposure, sales of ASCAP tunes plummeted. The people were spending their money on records and sheet music featuring BMI songs. The unintended uh, consequence of ASCAP's position, you know, if you want to go into revisionist history, you have to wonder if ASCAP had been uh, more sensible and BMI, which was the new organization, had never existed or was never forced to exist, how music would have developed for the rest of the century. But the broadcasters said, we'll sign up songwriters that ASCAP has uh, ignored. Basically, ASCAP had ignored all the roots music, a lot of jazz, blues, folk music, rhythm and blues, country music. This whole stream of music would eventually be the backbone of BMI and the beginning of rock and roll. Finally, on November 1st, 10 months after the boycott began and just five weeks before the Imperial Japanese Navy would bomb Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, the boycott ended. The new royalty rate negotiated by ASCAP and the broadcasters was nearly identical to the one from before the boycott. The boycott was unequivocally a victory for the broadcasters and a crushing blow for ASCAP. ASCAP failed to get their royalty rate increase, and the new music on the radio was pushing American popular music in a brand new direction, away from ASCAP. America's collective musical ear was evolving. It coincided, it was the mid-50s, with the birth of rock and roll. And if you were to look at the top ten rock and roll acts of the 50s and 60s, if not 10, then 9 were totally BMI. 
Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, uh, Lieber and Stoller, who wrote for Elvis, had, were BMI. So they had like 80% of the pop charts at one point. And the rhythm and blues, they'd have like 95% in country music. And ASCAP was just sitting there watching this all go by, trying to sue BMI, taking them to court for claiming they were a monopoly. Through the 1940s and 50s, ASCAP never admitted that popular taste had evolved beyond the classy songs of the American songbook. They never embraced the so-called lowbrow music from rural America. ASCAP thought their troubles were caused by a vast conspiracy between BMI, the radio stations, and the record labels. Now, ASCAP is saying they're corrupting the, the taste of the country, and they can do it because they're all broadcasters. So the broadcasters are playing BMI music because they have a stake in it, which was not a crazy argument. The broadcast companies like NBC and CBS owned the major record labels like RCA Victor and CBS Records. They also controlled BMI, so it is definitely not crazy to believe that the record labels, the radio networks, and BMI were colluding to suppress competition from ASCAP. They were all owned by the same people. Many believe that this conspiracy was true, including Frank Sinatra, who publicly denounced CBS Records for forcing him to sing silly BMI songs. But whether or not this was unlawful collusion didn't matter to the public. They loved these BMI songs. And they were playing their music, but the people loved it. Couldn't force it down their throat if they didn't want to hear it. ASCAP ignored the new music, hoping it was just a momentary fad and instead focused on their court cases with BMI. ASCAP made a mistake and they would pay for it for the next 25 years. We're gonna rock, we're gonna rock these joints tonight. When television started to find its way into more and more American living rooms, ASCAP was not as aggressive with this new broadcasting medium. They learned from past experiences that they were not unbeatable and instead negotiated royalty rates with the television broadcasters without the threat of a boycott. Ed Sullivan was a newspaper columnist who started hosting an early incarnation of his variety show called The Toast of the Town. During the second season of his show, Sullivan invited Sharky the Seal on as a guest. This time, there was no boycott to stop Sharky from performing the full range of his repertoire. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Your Lincoln Mercury dealer presents Toast of the Town, starring the nationally syndicated newspaper columnist Ed Sullivan. On Sunday, November 27, 1949, after the chorus girls had finished singing the opening song, camera two moved to Sharky walking down the curving staircase towards center stage. Ed Sullivan emerges from the right side of the screen and the two meet at the center. Hello, Sharky. How are you? Sharky? That's a fine thing. This is Sullivan, huh? Sharky, give me a fin. Sharky and Mr. Sullivan shook hand and flipper, and then Sullivan called for Sharky's trainer, Mark Hewling, to come on stage. Mark, come here a moment. How has Sharky been? How has Sharky been? Has he been behaving himself for the holidays? Just a nice tour down south on affairs. Uh-huh. Well, when did he come into New York? I didn't expect him here tonight. Much? Well, he got in this morning. About 10 o'clock. Well, I tell you, I suppose he is, is, is he prepared to do, a, do an act? Oh, sure. We're getting everything ready back here now. Oh, fine. Well, suppose, suppose we go right into, into Sharky's deck. Well, I think everything's huh? ready right now. Open right up. Sharky's deck. The band started playing, and Sharky and Mark Hewling began their performance. Sharky juggles tennis balls, balances various household objects on his nose, catches a frisbee on a stick, and he claps for himself after each trick. 
Sharky even does imitations. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have Sharky do a little talking and imitating. You're all familiar with Leo, the MGM lion, of course. So, Sharky, let Paris. A B-29, flying over little old New York. <laughs> and now we'll have a demonstration of one of your good old New York politicians. Just before election, of course. Finally, in preparation of the finale, Mark Hewling holds a handkerchief to Sharky's nose and... Now, with clear nasal passages, Sharky prepares to perform his song Where the River Shannon Flows. Hewling rolls out the homemade instrument and Sharky climbs on top of a stool so he can reach the buttons and use his nose to play the tune. Sharky the Seal had finally performed Where the River Shannon Flows on the public airwaves. BMI was the first performance rights organization that allowed African-American songwriters to become members. This fact is often used to portray BMI as a socially progressive organization who believed all people should be treated equally. But the truth is not as simple as that. African-Americans were allowed to join BMI because BMI wanted their songs, but those African-Americans didn't necessarily get paid the amount they deserved. They didn't necessarily get paid at all. Well, if they did integrate it, the level they integrated it was in the songs they chose. But a lot of these songwriters didn't get allowed to join BMI either uh, for any number of reasons, and they would sign up the publishers... But the publishers, it was up to their discretion as to whether they clued in their writers that, well, we have to share this performance royalty with you. One interview I have in the book of Hank Ballard, who wrote The, the Twist, saying that either BMI or people told him or his publisher told him, you had to have 100 songs before you could get BMI royalties. Many of the early acts were totally ripped off, and in publishing as well as in the record labels. This was just another side of it. Finally, in the 1960s, following the success of the Beatles leading the British invasion and Bob Dylan leading the folk revival, ASCAP picked a new leader who looked at their problems with fresh eyes. Rather than fight the trends already underway, ASCAP finally decided to embrace them and began initiatives to make inroads into the rock and roll, folk, and country music scenes. When ASCAP began to see that DMI was starting to take over the charts, first they tried to sue them, but uh, that didn't work, so they finally had to expand their... uh horizons and admit that the kind of pop music that they had been living off for uh, 40 years was changing and the audience was changing and if they wanted to survive they'd have to adapt to it before it was too late in the late 50s and it took until the 70s before they became on an equal footing with BMI. From the 1970s on both ASCAP and BMI began to look more and more alike and behave more and more fairly towards every songwriter. 
They both allowed everyone to join. They both paid people fairly and equally. There was no more elitism or deception. To become a member, a composer only needs to fill out a form, sign a short contract, and have written a single song. Each songwriter receives a detailed quarterly report documenting every single time their songs were used. The payments accompanying those reports flow directly into each songwriter's bank account without a music publisher or middleman intercepting them. Some now describe ASCAP and BMI as parody products, kind of like Coke and Pepsi. But to this day, there remains one huge difference. One of the big selling points of ASCAP is that the board of directors of ASCAP are actual publishers and songwriters. There's like 12 publishers and 12 songwriters. Whereas on BMI, the board of directors is from the radio industry. The parties and interests that control ASCAP and BMI has not changed since before World War II. By the time the BMI songwriters were starting to light up the charts with doo-wop and early rock and roll songs, Sharky the Seal was aging and beginning to feel aches in his flippers. In autumn of 1957, Sharky's current manager, another SEAL trainer named Billy Rowe, tried to persuade him to retire from show business. Sharky didn't voice any objections. They agreed that Sharky would star alongside the Rockettes one last time in the Christmas Spectacular at Rockefeller Center. After the 1957 Christmas season drew to a close, Sharky left the stage for good after a two-decade-long career. He retired to Kingston, New York, the place where his career had begun. In May of the next year, after a long, healthy, and fulfilling life, Sharkey passed away from old age. He is buried on the property once owned by his manager, Billy Rowe, not too far from the Esopus Creek, and just on the other side of the Washington Avenue viaduct from where Mark Hewling's Seal College once stood. This show was produced and edited by me, Matthew Billy. Jason Silverman created the graphics and website. Laura Vandiver assisted with production and read the New York Times article about Sharky. The ASCAP historian on this episode was Bruce Pollock. His book, A Friend in the Music Business, The ASCAP Story, is available in bookstores and online. It is also the only official history of ASCAP. Thanks to Gary Bohan Sr. for talking to me about his grandfather in the SEAL College. His son Gary Bohan Jr. was very helpful with coordinating the interview. Special thanks to Ann Gordon, the historian of Ulster County, New York, Edwin Ford, the city of Kingston historian, Richard Turk, Mary Dwyer Williams, and everyone from the I'm From Kingston, New York Facebook group who shared their memories about Sharky with me. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at our website, BetweenTheLinerNotes.com, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to write to us. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Between the Liner Notes.